We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. Today's guest has spent over 40 years in the NBA as both a player, a player coach, and a coach. He's a nine-time All-Star. He was on the NBA's top 50 for 50 years as a player and also on their top 10 list as a coach. And he was on their top 75 players uh, for 75 years as a player and on their top 15 list as a coach. He is in the Hall of Fame, the Naismith Hall of Fame, as a player, as a coach, and as a member of the 92 Dream Team, where he was an assistant. And he's also in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. He won an NBA title in 1979, coaching the Seattle Supersonics. And he was also the gold medal coach in 1996 in the Olympics. He retired as a player with the most assists in league history, and he retired as a coach, as the winningest coach of all time with over 1,300 victories. I'm very happy to welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Lenny Wilkins. Lenny, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) Uh, Well, Lenny, um, as you know, as we've talked about, I like to just kind of go through the arc of, of somebody's, you know, kind of basically their life, you know, they're growing up high school years, college years and the pros, uh, obviously a lot of points to touch on with you. Um, you grew up in Brooklyn in Bedford Stuyvesant and went to boys high school, which is now boys and girls high school. Uh, tell me a little bit about growing up in Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn has a rich history of, of people growing up there, you know, uh, when, when I was growing up, uh, baseball was the main thing. And I was a big Dodger fan. I had a very close friend who we were both Dodger fans, but he, he was a great athlete. His name was Tommy Davis. And, and Tommy went on to, uh, you know, play professional baseball. But as kids, we, we played baseball, basketball, street ball, handball, you name it. Uh, anything that had a ball, we were there. And, uh, and so we would go to the playgrounds a lot. And, uh, you know, uh, I really, uh, didn't get 
that interested into basketball until my uh, junior year in high school. Uh, I went out for the team my freshman year, and there were 15 guys on the team. I was number 15, and uh, we had a great coach named Mickey Fisher. But I had to get a job. I mean, I didn't play much at all, and, and I had a little job after school to help out with the family. So uh, I dropped off the team. But uh, I start, started to like the sport. I started to go to the playground a lot more. And, uh, and Tommy encouraging me, uh, I, uh, you know, started to really play and learn the game. And then, uh, I went out for the team again, my senior year in high school and, and made the starting five. <laughs> and I, I read at one point, you said something about learning to play on the playgrounds of Brooklyn. You said that today, sometimes being a playground player is almost an insult that you're more about being one-on-one and, and, you know, you don't stick to the fundamentals, but for you growing up, the playgrounds were like a great training ground. Oh, it was because on Saturday afternoons, uh, a lot of the college players came down and, and, and we would be able to compete against them. And finally I was able to compete. And uh, there was a guy that lived around the corner from me. His name was Vinnie Cohen. And uh, he went to Syracuse University. He was an All-American there. But uh, he didn't go pro because uh, at the time he graduated, uh, he had a better offer with a law firm. And he got his law degree and did wonderful things. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I, uh, you know, playing on the playground against guys like him, I saw where I was improving and getting better. And that's why I went out for the high school team. And, and, and made their starting five. And, uh, you know, it was fun. Uh, and I'm, uh, you know, very happy. I mean, I think that I was able to accomplish a lot when you think about it. Uh, I only played a half a year high school ball. And uh, I, uh, a priest friend of mine wrote to Providence College uh, telling uh, the coach about me. And, uh, and coach never really saw me play. Uh, you know, they, at back then they had, uh, tryouts at certain high schools and, uh, the Chaminade high school, they had a tryout one summer. I went out there, but, uh, there was like 200 kids. And the first guy that got his hands on the ball shot it. So you couldn't see anything. I didn't think. And then I was after my, after I graduated from high school, um, I, I was eligible to play in a uh, postseason tournament out on Long Island. It was the Flushing Y tournament. And I played in that tournament and became the MVP. And the coach of Providence, his father was at the game. And he saw me play and he called Joe and he said, Joe Mullaney, he said, this can't be the same kid that wants to go to Providence. And that's how I wound up with a scholarship. <laughs> That's amazing. And, uh, and at Providence, you become a two-time All-American. Uh, you lead the team to two NITs. And um, ultimately, they retire your jersey. Uh, and then in 1960, you graduate, and you're in, a, you're in a, a big-time draft. It's you, it's Oscar Robertson, it's Jerry West, it's Satch Sanders. Um, it's also the 1960 Summer Olympics. And I found this to be really interesting. There was, there was kind of a, a, a turf war 
over who kind of controlled um, who would play on the Olympic teams back then between the NCAA and the AAU. And ultimately some kind of deal. That's was right. struck. Yeah. And it, some kind of deal was struck where each would get an allotted number of players on the team, which ended up hurting you. T- tell me a little bit about that. Well, it, it was very tough because uh, I, uh, being in the NIT, which was a great tournament, uh, I, I was the MVP. And, uh, and then there was an East-West College All-Star game. And uh, in that game, uh, the Jerry West and I got the co-MVP award. Uh, we beat the West. And, uh, and the New York Papers really lit up the Olympic Committee because I wasn't on that team. I wasn't offered a, a tryout. And I was disappointed also because we, as growing up as kids, the Olympics were a big thing to us. And, and I felt that I deserved to be on there. Uh, there were players on there that I knew I was as good as, or if not better. And so it was a disappointment to not make it. I got a, uh, a call from Pete Newell, who was coaching the team. And he said that, you know, if, uh, if anyone got sick or hurt, I'd be the first alternate. And and I thanked him, but I said, Pete, if I was hurt, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> you know, because if you have an opportunity to be on a team like that. And uh, so it was disappointing. But, uh, you know, later on uh, in the NBA draft, I was drafted by the St. Louis Hawks, who I wasn't sure if they – really believed that I could make their team, but uh, I was drafted and, uh, and later on got to play against a lot of the same guys that I played against in college, you know, Oscar, Jerry, uh, you know, at uh, Satch Sanders, who was drafted by the Celtics, you know, it, it, uh, you never know how life goes, but uh, fortunately for me, it went uh, very well. Yeah. Yeah, so you're you're with St. Louis, bunch of Hall of Famers on the team: Bob Pettit, Clyde Lovelet, Cliff Hagen. You basically come in, and if, if I read it correctly, you're basically replacing Slater Martin, another Hall of Fame uh, guard. Um, and your rookie mm-hmm. year, you guys lose to the Celtics in the finals. Um, and over your eight years in St. Louis, you make five All Star teams, um, and you're actually the runner up to Wilt Chamberlain for MVP in 68. How, how were your years in St. Louis playing with, you know, some of those guys, some of those veterans? Well, um, Bob Pettit was a, a great guy. He, he, you know, he was a great talent and, uh, but he and, and, and Cliff Hagen kind of, uh, you, you know, they, they didn't make it difficult for me. Uh, they knew that I could run the team, pass the ball. And, and when I came to the Hawks, they didn't have anything for the guards and we used to have a one play they had set up where we ran the guard would dribble over to the other guard and hand the ball off to him and he would take it and look for the power forward or whoever the forward was coming off the double screen and one time I kept it and kept went right to the basket and score and the other guards started to do it and the coach got mad at them (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, but, but Bob Pettit was, uh, you know, listen, St. Louis was a difficult city to live in. Uh, you couldn't, my first year there, you couldn't eat in the restaurants downtown. 
And I knew that because uh, I had, uh, we played St. Louis University my junior year in college. And I remember knowing what St. Louis was like. So when I was drafted, I wasn't very happy. But uh, like I said, I got to know Pettit and, and Hagen was friendly. You know, uh, there was one uh, minority on the team, a guy named Sahigo Green, who uh, was very quiet. And he was from Brooklyn, New York. You know, he played at Duquesne University, but uh, they really never let him do anything. You know, uh, there was kind of an unwritten rule back then. Most teams had one or two on a team and no more of minorities. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's adjusting to stuff like that. And But I knew the game. I knew how to play. I knew how to get the ball to people. And the only one I worried about getting the ball to was Bob Pettit because he was the star of our team. And I knew that if I got him the ball and he was happy, I wasn't going to worry about anybody else. But uh, Cliff Hagen uh, was friendly, you know, uh, and uh, at time, things change. You know, it got better and better and better. Right. And one interesting note there, the GM of the team was a guy named Marty Blake who ultimately became the head of scouting for the NBA, the godfather of the NBA draft. And his, one of the niches he kind of created was finding these gems, guys like Carl Malone at Louisiana Tech and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman. One of the guys he found, and and I'm jumping ahead and we'll, we'll get to it later, but one of the guys that your general manager when you were a player for the Hawks ultimately found 20 years later for you was Jack Sigma coming out of Illinois Wesleyan. What was Marty Blake like? Marty was crazy. He was funny guy. You know, he loved the game of basketball. I remember when I first met him, uh, we were playing in the NIT and it was after a game. And, uh, you know, he was in the lobby of the hotel that, uh, that we were staying in the Providence college team. And there were a lot of people talking and, and everything. And he came over and he had this big cigar he was smoking and, he said, how you doing, kid? You like to play the game, you know? And and I just looked at him because I didn't know him at the time, you know. Right. And, uh, you know, but uh, he, I, I didn't pay much attention to him until I uh, was drafted by the Hawks. And then, then I got to know him a little better because I had to negotiate against him, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but he was uh, – he did have a great eye for talent. And I have to say that because uh, – he, he uh, you know, looked at a lot of young guys who were great, who turned out to be great talents. And he was the guy who would see them and, and, and pick them and name them, you know, stuff like that. Sure. And then in the year where you're the runner up to, uh, to Chamberlain for MVP, the Hawks then trade you to Seattle, where you play for the next four years and you're the player coach for three of them. And you're still an all-pro, an all-star for three of those years. What led to the trade from mm-hmm. St. Louis to Seattle, and what were your thoughts there? Well, uh, I knew I was going to be traded. Uh, the the coach and I uh, didn't see eye to eye, and you know we had contract problem with the team. The franchise moved from St. Louis to Atlanta, and they had invited all the players down for a luncheon except for me. So, you know, the handwriting was on the wall and 
in the playoffs the, uh, at the end of the season, that my last season there, the the coach and I just, uh, you know, he, uh, he 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 was a very dominant personality, and he didn't want anyone ever to speak up or say anything or recommend anything, and so he and I, uh, uh, it it just was not a good mix, and I could see it coming when they didn't invite me to the lunch and I knew I was being traded. Uh, I was uh, unhappy about being traded to Seattle at first because it was an expansion team and I wanted to go to a team uh, that, you know, had playoff uh, potential. And and I knew that the Celtics had an interest in me, but uh, they weren't going to trade me there. That was too close to St. Louis. And, And they had a good team. So I wind up being traded to Seattle and it turned out to be a blessing in the skies because uh, they were a young team. Uh, we, were, we were getting great fans. They really supported the team and uh, they supported me. Uh, you know, I was, uh, after one year there, the general manager wanted me uh, to be a player coach. I told him he was crazy, but it was so close to the start of the season that I accepted uh, because I, I felt that, you know, we, we, we didn't need to be making a lot of changes. What we needed to do was to get to know one another, you know, cause uh, I mean, I, I had only been there a year and, uh, and, and like I said, with a lot of young guys, uh, it was going to take a little time and for the team to grow. So it turned out the next three years I was a player coach. Yeah, and the, the year you got there, it was a 23-win team. And by the time you left four years later, you were a 47-win team on, like you said, a team that was basically an expansion team when you got there. Um, obviously, you added guys like downtown Freddie Brown and Spencer Haywood. Uh and obviously you're still a very young guy. I mean, you're, you're in your late twenties at this point, late twenties, early thirties. What was it like being a player mm-hmm. coach for three years? Well, it, it, it was, it was interesting. It was fun. You know, Hey, listen, uh, you know, I had, uh, I got to know the coach of UW real well, a guy named Marv Harshman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, cause we used to do a little show together. So I asked him to come to a practice one time. And, and tell me what he saw, you know, what, I, what, I, what should I be doing something different? And he was great. He was great. He was wonderful. He was, uh, you know, he, he pointed out certain things for me, you know, and, uh, and as it, time went on, I began to realize that, uh, you know, eventually I was going to have to just be a full-time coach because we were getting younger and younger players and, and who really didn't know a lot about the game because they were leaving college early. And all of a sudden I I realized that uh, if I was going to coach, I was going to have to spend more time at preparation and, and doing it, you know? So eventually, you know, um, I was, uh, I was a player coach in uh, Portland and uh, they wanted me to play or coach. And I told them that I was going to, I would rather play because, you know, coaching was, uh, uh, they didn't pay me enough, but, but anyway, I wound up being traded eventually. 
I was traded to Cleveland, I think it was, and then I played there for two years uh, and went to Portland and was there for a year, and finally I decided that uh, I was going to stop being a player coach. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. You when, when you were in Seattle, you – like I said, you know, you go from kind of 20 plus wins to by the end of your run where you're the coach, as well as an all-star player, you're at 47 wins and then they trade you. And I'm just wondering, it can't be that the coach had an issue with the, the point guard because you're the coach and the point guard. So what was the thinking behind <laughs> that break? <laughs> well, they, we got a new general manager. And like I said, he wanted me to either play or coach. Got it. And I said, you know, they didn't pay me enough to, to coach. But plus I still had good years left. I was, uh, you know, as a player. Sure. And uh, so he, uh, they hired a new coach. And I don't know how much input the new coach had, but uh, whether they were fearful that the players might listen to me and not him, they traded me to Cleveland. And at first I decided I wasn't going to go, but then I did go. I was, uh, I wound up in Cleveland, uh, playing for Bill Fitch. And, uh, I was there for two years and, uh, I was, uh, decided, uh, because I wanted to get back to the Northwest because that's where we made our home. And, and, uh, we still went there in the off season. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was uh, offered, uh, you know, uh, a job with the uh, Portland Trailblazers because I said I was going to retire from Cleveland. And, you know, after two years, I was going to not play anymore. So Portland makes a deal to get me, you know, as a, uh, you know, a, a, they trade for me to get my rights. And and I thought that possibly I would uh, just coach, but they wanted me to be a player coach. So I wound up being a player coach for Portland as well. <laughs> which which is extraordinary that, you know, by the time you're in your mid-30s, you've now been the player coach for two different teams. Um, one quick question about your years in Cleveland. Uh, Bill Fitch, did you, as as a guy who had already coached a team, and obviously you were getting ready to embark on a very long coaching career, what was it like playing for Bill Fitch? Did you pick a lot up from him? Well, I, I, I learned a lot from him. And also, hopefully, he learned a lot from me. Um, you know, he was an interesting guy. And, uh, you know, we were, uh, the players used to call me a POW because I, on the planes, I always had to sit with Bill because he wanted to discuss basketball, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, it was funny. But we became good friends. And uh, But after one road trip, we got back, and we had won uh, one game and lost three. And Bill was really upset with the team, and he uh, had a bus waiting. And we went right from the airport to practice. Oh. And, and, and he, and, and at the end of practice, he was still pissed and he, uh, he made the, the guard, the, the guards run wind sprints, then the forwards, then the centers. And, and he never allowed anyone to sit in his practices, you know? So after running wind sprints 
two or three times. You know, I had kind of banged my knee up a little bit on the road and it was a little sore. So I, I went and sat down. I was not going to run anymore. And, uh, you know, if he find me, he find me, but I just wasn't going to run anymore. And, and so he made, so in every, and all the players are watching, you know, cause I'm the one veteran player on the team. Sure. And, and so he, uh, makes, he makes the centers run. He makes the forwards run. And then he says, all right, that's it. Practice is over. So guys are in the locker room. They're grumbling. They're upset. You know, they're irritated. And I don't say anything. I, you know, I just go shower and everything. So as I'm leaving, he's there waiting on me, Bill. You know, and uh, he wants to have a cup of coffee. So I said, okay. So I go have a cup of coffee with him. So he says to me, okay, what's on your mind? So I look at him. I said, what do you mean? He says, you know what I mean. What's on your mind? So I say to him, I said, well, I said, what'd you teach us tonight? And he kind of looked at me. I said, you didn't teach us anything. You punished us because we weren't very good on the road. I said, Bill, that doesn't get anything. That doesn't solve anything. And it doesn't get the respect that you deserve as a coach. Hmm. And, and he kind of looked at me. He puts his arm around me, hugs me and leaves. So, uh, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm hoping he learned some things from me too. And, uh, but he never punished us again. I mean, he spent more time teaching, explaining, because I felt that that was more important. You know, yeah. uh, sometimes we had to learn how to double team. We had to learn how to rotate, how to trap. And, and yeah. those are things that I learned from my college coach and also from uh, Marv Harshman, who was at University of Washington. Well, and to answer your question, it sounds like he did learn something from you if, A, he didn't punish you for it, and B, you guys never were punished like that again. You know, you never had to, like, run sprints or anything like that again. It does sound like he learned from you. Well, I hope so. You know, I mean, I listen, he loved the game. No one loved the game more than he did, okay? Right. I mean, if he had to, he would sit and watch video all night. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and to me, you know, you, you pick out what you want to see on video, isolate it and then show it to the players that, okay, here's where we could, you know, do this. Here's where we could trap. Here's how we rotate. Here's, you know, and so, uh, so, so we became good friends. That's great. And, and then, mm -hmm. then you're in Portland and you're a player coach for a year. And then, and then you retire as a player, as the all-time uh, assist leader. And then you continue to coach one more year. And those two years are Bill Walton's first two years in the NBA. Now, granted, he spends a lot of time on the shelf with injuries, but it's the beginning of Walton's career. Sidney Wicks is there. Uh, and obviously, right after you left, they go to win the title. Could you kind of see his, his greatness when you, you, know, when you were there? Oh yeah, I saw it. I had I've seen Bill play in college, you know, and uh, and he was hurt with us a lot, and and he was also at the time a little bit crazy, you know. He um, he, he was 
he 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 liked uh, to do crazy things, but um, <laughs> like you know, can I ask the what? injuries kept him. <laughs> I'll just leave it that way. Okay. But uh, he uh, and and he he was hurt a lot, but um, and and also at the end of the first year, because I knew the owner, I had final say on the draft. And I wanted, and the, and the two, and the players that I drafted at, at the end of my first year was uh, Lionel Hollins and Bobby Gross. Mm-hmm. And I also made a trade for uh, Twardzik. Because I, and you know, and then I knew that uh, that team had potential. But there was a writer in Portland, and I don't remember his name, but he used to give me hell all the time because I played Bobby Gross and Lionel Hollins a lot, but they were young players and they were going to be the players to lead that team. I felt. And so, uh, at the end of my second year there, the owner, uh, he became the managing partner for the football team in Seattle. And, uh, so he left. So his partner, took over and I had, uh, at the end of that second year, I wanted to trade Sidney Wicks because I just felt that the chemistry wasn't good. And, uh, so, uh, he didn't want to, his name was Larry Weinberg and, uh, and he, and he didn't want to trade him. So they, uh, so anyway, they decide they're going to let me go. So I, told him, I said to him, I said, listen, I said, uh, it's your team and, and you have the final say on everything. I said, but I'm going to tell you this much. If Bill Walton stays healthy, these two players that I caught all the hell for, Bobby Gross and Lionel Hollins, are going to help you win a championship. And you were right. And, uh, and I said, and I, and I would trade Wicks. So they let me go. And, uh, cause they got to pay me for a couple more years anyway. And they, uh, hire, uh, Jack Ramsey. Sure. And what's the first thing he tells them? Get rid of Wicks. He tells them that they need to trade Wicks. (laughs) 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 And, and, and that's amusing to me because, you know, he's paying me and I already told him that, you know, so I worked for CBS that year. And I watch very closely, but, uh, and, and Jack Ramsey comes in, they trade Wicks, Walton stays healthy. They win the championship and those players that I had, you know, towards it, gross Hollins, they were all key players and, and along with Walton. Yep. And, uh, you know, so I, I leave CBS after one year because Seattle wants me to come work for them. And and I'm living in Seattle, you know, and I had the owner was at a big charity dinner I was at. It was called Poncho and all night long he followed me around. So I accepted to take the job with Seattle. Yeah, you you take over a team in the middle of the year that is like, I don't know, they're like seven and 20 or something like that. And you turn around and go 42 and 18 down the stretch. 
and you get to the NBA finals and you lose to the bullets in seven, but obviously you've got something going there. And then the yeah. center Marvin Webster leaves. Was that in free agency or was he traded? Free agency. Free agency. Yeah. What happened was, sorry. Yeah. I, when I took the job with them, I was in the front office <clears throat> and they were trying to trade Fred Brown. And I stopped that trade because I told him it was a bad trade. And, um, and then, uh, Marvin Webster, uh, he, uh, at the end of the year, he signs with New York because he's a free agent. And I make them give me compensation. They give me, uh, I, I, I tell them I, I want Lonnie Shelton because mm. I had seen him play in college. Right. So I get Lonnie Shelton and the team gets off to a terrible start. They're five and 17 when I took over. I, I moved from the front office to become the head coach. And, uh, and so, uh, becoming the head coach, uh, I changed a few things around. We, uh, we win 10 straight. We start to play really well. Uh, we get to the finals. You're right. Uh, we lost to, uh, Baltimore, <clears throat> but I, you know, I felt like this team could win it all. And, and I, told my players I wanted them to believe that and that uh, the next year we were going to get out of the gate right away. So, and that was in 79, we did win the championship. Right. You, the backcourt is Gus Williams and Dennis Johnson, Freddie Brown coming off the bench. You've got Paul Silas who's yeah. been brought in, Shelton who's been brought in and Sigma kind of takes over in the middle uh, to go back to the- Right, he takes wrestlers. over in the middle because- Tom Lagarde got hurt. Yes. Mm -hmm. And Jack was, uh, when I drafted Jack, there was a <laughs> headline in the paper that said, Jack who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I had seen him play as well. At Illinois I saw West him Lane. play in the NC2A. Pardon okay. me? At, at, at Illinois in West Kansas Lane. City. Yeah. Uh, yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so you guys win in 79 and then, down the road in LA, Magic Johnson is coming to Los Angeles. And obviously the Lakers become the Lakers of the eighties. Um, towards, towards the end of your eight years in Seattle, you actually have David Thompson uh, come to you. Mm -hmm. He'd been in Denver and had had some injuries. He comes in, he actually has an all-star year with you. Uh, but just, you know, I'm just curious. I know Bill Walton had a, a famous quote that that David Thompson was Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tracy McGrady, and LeBron James all rolled into one. Uh, unfortunately, he also had some demons at that time. But what was it like with David Thompson on yeah. the roster? Well, you know, he, he was a, <clears throat> a great young man. Unfortunately, he, you're right. He had some problems. And, uh, and that's what brought him down. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's um, uh, this sad story because uh, – uh, if he could have stayed away from drugs, he would have been fine. You right. know, he was, he was a great, great talent. And, uh, I wish I had known him earlier and sooner, you know, maybe I could have helped him, but, uh, you know, uh, when you're coaching a team and everything, you can only spend so much time with, uh, with every player, you know? Yeah. And then, 
And then, so that the time in Seattle comes to an end and a year later you go to Cleveland and uh, full disclosure, I, I grew up in Minneapolis in Cleveland. So I'm, I'm among other things, a Cavs fan. And draft day 1986 is one of the craziest days. We, we'd gone through all the years with Ted Stepien and all that, you know, the, the league stepping in and not allowing them to make trades and all of that stuff. And all of a sudden in 1986, on one, in one day, Brad Darty is drafted, Ron Harper is drafted, a trade is made for uh, Mark Price, who was drafted that day. Second round pick, yeah. Mm-hmm. Second round pick. First pick and Hot, Rod Williams, <laughs> Hot Rod Williams, who'd been drafted the year before, but couldn't play because of the scandal down at Tulane with gambling. All of a sudden, he's eligible. So basically, in one day, basically a team is born, and you're brought in to coach it. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, it, it, it was an interesting time, believe me. When I uh, they had uh, gotten permission, uh, Wayne Embry gotten permission to talk to me, and they talked to me about coming. And I said, you know, well, I'd wait when the season was over. I'd come, you know, down there, be, uh, and we could talk then. But I couldn't right now. So they waited, and, and finally the season was over, uh, and and I went to Cleveland, and I met with uh, the owner Gordon Gunn, at that time um, Wayne Embry, uh, a guy named Fax to Trafton, and uh, and uh, was another guy, and we met and talked, and uh, and Gordon and I, I guess. Well, Wayne was already in my corner. Wayne wanted to hire me, but Gordon wanted to do this interview, you know, first. Mm-hmm. And, and which was fine. And we talked and talked and, and they were all in there in the room, the guys I mentioned. And, uh, and finally, uh, one of them said it was either Faxter or this other guy, I can't remember his name. Uh, they wanted me to take a test. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I don't take tests. I give them. <laughs> and, and Gordon loved it. He stopped laughing. You know, he had uh, retinitis pigmentosa, so he was partially blind. You know, he saw in shadows. Sure. But, but, but when I said that, Gordon started laughing. And right away, he said, that's it. That's the guy. I want him. <laughs> you know? And uh, so, we, uh, so I became coach of Cleveland and it was a good run. Yeah. Early the next year, you pick up Larry Nance and uh, yeah. And a tray. Yeah. For the next six or seven years, pretty much every year you guys are, you know, winning in the mid fifties. Obviously, you know, again, similar to having magic and uh, you know, Kareem down the coast in LA now, Michael and, and team have come together in Chicago uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, a great run of seven years with Cleveland. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I have to ask the question that, you know, the, I think it was the game five against the Cavs when when Jordan hits that shot over over Craig Elo. Uh, what was the emotion at mm-hmm. that point? At that moment? Well, you know, Craig, Craig was right there. I mean, you know, he had to elevate that shot and it went in. But what I tell people, a lot of them forget, is the play before that, we were down one. And we took a timeout, and we set up a backdoor situation, and Craig scores on that to put us up one. A lot of people forget that. 
you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, Hey, Michael made a great shot, you know? And, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, and so all people remember is the, the, the shot he made, but not to play before, but yeah. you know, it, it was incredible. Uh, also, uh, that last year too, uh, we, they traded, we traded Ron Harper. I was against that trade. I didn't want that trade. I was upset with it. So that's why a year later, even though we win 50 something games, I resigned. Oh, that was, that was the, one of the reasons, or that was the reason behind the resignation. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. Cause I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't understand why you, I mean, Ron was such a great, great talent. And in fact, Wayne Embry and I, uh, I didn't speak to Wayne for a couple of years because I felt he should have backed me. But he was in a tough position himself, okay? And, and uh, the owner, the, all the advice he got from his guys were that uh, Ron should have been traded, that he wasn't good people. And that was uh, a mistake. That was a misnomer because the players love Ron and Ron had great talent and he was our chance to beat Chicago. Right. And in fact, all he does is end up in Chicago playing with Jordan, winning yeah. three more rings in the late nineties. Right. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Um, and then, and so then when you leave Cleveland, you go down to Atlanta and again, similar to in your Cleveland years, you know, pretty much, you know, 50 plus wins every year and, you know, quite a number of stars on your roster over those years. Just curious to take on a few of them, like early on Dominique Wilkins and Danny Manning, and then Christian Leitner and Steve Smith and even Dikembe Mutombo. Uh, what were some of those guys like? I wanted them to learn to play together and, and they did, uh, you know, um, it was, uh, you know, it's uh, we had some pretty good players, and and we had a pretty good playoff, and uh, with those guys, um, you know, uh, they wanted to trade Dominic. I was against that, and uh, eventually, uh, that that was a falling out between me and uh, Stan Caston and Pete Babcock. And and if you ever talk to Pete Babcock, he'll let you know. I, I did not want them to trade Dominic. I felt Dominic should be able to retire there. Right. And so that was a bad move, uh, you know, and, uh, but, uh, you know, Christian, uh, Christian uh, was getting advice from his family and, and I think he decided to leave on his own. I can't remember, you know, uh, whether he was a free agent or what the deal was. Yeah, he but, jumped uh, but we had Kevin Willis there, Mookie Blaylock, Stacy Ogman, and and I got those guys to really play together, and we had fun uh, yeah. while we were there. I mean, because every night we stepped on the floor, we competed, and we felt we could win. Yeah, yeah, those were, those were fun guys to watch. Loved watching Mookie Blaylock. Loved watching Steve Smith. That that was those are fun teams. And then you go, then you go, speaking of fun guys to watch, then you're up in Toronto uh, for three years and Vince Carter is on the team. Uh, what, what was it like coaching Vince Carter? Well, he was a great talent, great, great talent. And, uh, you know, uh, that team, uh, they were, again, learning to play with each other, uh, learning uh, like 
when I got us to the playoffs, um, you know, uh, Vince was going to go to a graduation. Uh, his, I mean, his class, uh, it, it could have, he could have gone any year. I mean, but he wanted to walk with the class or something. I right. didn't know that they had made plans to let him go. Yeah. And he was going to join us, you know, and I, I, I was just upset by that. I tried to talk him out of it, uh, to go maybe another time at the end of the year. But, uh, because to me, you get in the playoffs and you only have so many chances to potentially win, you know, a championship. And I thought that that might take something away from him physically, you know, because when you're with, you're at the graduation ceremonies, you're on your feet all the time, you're with the guys and people, and then you come fly in and, and just in time to be at our shoot around. And, uh, you know, so, and all the players knew he was going there as well. And, and I was upset with the general manager because they, when they told me, and, and I, I tried to talk to Vince, but he had his mind made up. In fact, uh, one of the owners had, was going to let him use his plane. I remember that. And yeah. that to me, I mean, that's a distraction from basketball. I mean, we're trying to win and they're making the plane available for him to go. So, but, uh, as it was in the end, we lost a very close game that I thought we could have won because I knew the next team we were going to play, we could beat. And, uh, and I, I just thought it hurt us. That's all. But, I yeah. thought that Toronto had great fans. You could see it was growing. It was going to be a, a city that was going to support basketball. Yeah. And so uh, I, I enjoyed the fans, the people there, and I'm just sorry that, uh, you know, it ended that way. Sure. And then your last coaching job is uh, basically you come back home and you're coaching the Knicks. They, they let Don Chaney go um, halfway through the season, 03-04. A team is seven games under 500. You come in and coach them the rest of the way, and they're an above 500 team. So you stick around and you, you coach at the beginning of the next season, and then you resign. I think the team was a few games under 500, you know, maybe halfway through the season. What was the thinking there when you resigned from the Knicks, and, and what was that experience like? Well, I, it wasn't a great experience. I, I was very unhappy. Uh, they were, uh, there was always <clears throat> uh, something, um, you know, I don't think Isaiah and I hit it off real well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I felt like I was the coach of the team. And if you don't like what I do, fire me. It was not a good experience. Uh, and uh and so after a couple of years, I just knew it was, it would always be that way. There'd always be interference from the front office and I decided to leave. And then, um, and then along the way, and it's interesting because early on we talked about the 1960 Olympic team and the frustration there, guys like you and Havlicek not being able to play because they had to give a certain amount of slots to AAU guys. Um, mm-hmm. 92 comes along and the U S is going to send professionals and it's going to be the dream team. And Chuck Daly from Detroit is going to coach them. And he brings you, Mike Krzyzewski, and PJ Carlissimo on. Tell me what the experience was like being, uh, you know, one of the assistants on, on the dream team. 
both, you know, kind of being around the players and also just the experience in Barcelona? Well, it was a, uh, it was an opportunity. Uh, you know, Chuck and I got to know each other and respected one another. And he'd asked me to do certain things, you know, and a lot of times, you know, talk to the players, get them ready, you know, stuff like that. And, um, and, and I, you know, and I just basically, I told the guys because Charles could be crazy, you know, Barkley. Yeah. And I said, Hey, you know, uh, if we want to show the world how great we are, then this is an opportunity to do it. Let's go out there and be ready every game and show the world how good we are because they think that they're catching up to where our pros are, you know, and, and the guys responded, they, they, they competed, you know, uh, every time we stepped on the floor, they were ready to go. And, uh, so it it was a great experience. We got to Barcelona and, and we had security with us all the time because, um, I guess there was a group called the Basque there that made some threats, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and so, but I think that the other teams uh, that we played, they were in awe of our team. Because <laughs> they would be out there taking pictures of our team as well right. as everybody else. Right. And uh, so it was a great experience, you know, and uh, I just felt that, in 92 and then 96, I was the head coach and it was a great opportunity there, you know, uh, and, and we never let any team come close, you know, uh, in those games. And, uh, it, and like I said, the experiences with the players was tremendous, uh, because, uh, again, it's showing the world how good our pros were. Yeah. The, the 96, 96- I love the 96 story because, you know, 92 was, it was finally our chance to kind of say like, Hey, you know, we've always sent our college kids. Now we're sending our pros. This is what we're capable of. And then the pressure's on Mm -hmm. in 96 because then you got to do it again. And, uh, and that that's on your shoulders. Um, And it's fascinating because you, about half the guys come back, Barkley, Stockton, Malone, uh, David Mm -hmm. Robinson, but then you also, but then some of the, you know, some of the guys like Magic and Larry and and Michael kind of said like enough. Um, so you're bringing in, like yeah, Penny yeah. Well, they, yeah, I talked with them. Michael, you know, he said, Coach, if I if you need me, I'd be there, you know. And he said, but it's a chance to give other guys uh, a chance, and and that was right. Uh, I uh, I thought it was a good mix, and in '96 we. Uh, we went out there and they, uh, they remembered what the 92 team did and they tried to do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you look at the scores, you know, game by game, it, the dominance is almost exactly the same. It, you know, every win is like, you know, right. points, 29 points. I mean, it's extraordinary. You know, Gary Payton, mm-hmm. Mitch Richmond, uh, Shaquille, Reggie Miller, right. a lot of fun to watch those guys. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I have to ask you a question about, so you were a player coach twice in your career. Um, and I went back and looked, I mean, obviously the NBA has a little bit of a history of player coaches, but it was more kind of in the fifties and sixties. You, you were a player coach twice, obviously Seattle and Portland. The only guy who's been a player coach since you did it was Dave Cowens in the late seventies with the Celtics. Do you think we'll, we'll Mm -hmm. see that again? Or was that just kind of a, 
you know, something that could be done back then, but just couldn't be done now. I, I don't think you'll ever see it again. Uh, I, yeah. Uh, like I said, you know, guys are coming out from high school, uh, one year of college or having played in Europe. Um, so they need more attention, more teaching, more explaining, more showing. Right. And so I just don't think that you'll ever see it again. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I mean, we got some great, great young talent in the league today, but they still have to learn a lot about the game. You know, I mean, uh, I, one of my favorite young players in the league today is Jar Morant, mm-hmm. and and I think that he's going to get even better. And I think that if the coach works with him and helps him, I mean, his decision making will get better and better and better. Right. What are you up to these days? Um, well, not a whole lot. I uh, I hope that we get a team in Seattle because we have an arena, Climate Pledge Arena. They did a wonderful job, and I've been to a hockey game there to see the Kraken play. Sure. And I think that uh, it, this is still a basketball town. Uh, wherever I go, people talk basketball, and they want to know when the Sonics are coming back. So I tell them <laughs> – I hope within a few years that we'll have a basketball, a pro team here. Whether they name them the Sonics, I don't know. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, it's well, um, yeah, I would love to see Seattle, uh, uh, basketball back in Seattle. It would make sense. And you're right. They, they didn't take the name when they went to Oklahoma City. So the name is there waiting for you. Okay. Right. Well, uh, Lenny Wilkins, I just have to say thank you so much for taking the time to sit down. It was great hearing about the days growing up in Brooklyn and and uh, you know your days at Boys High School and then Providence College and obviously just such a unique career, you know, playing in the league for fourteen or fifteen years and then coaching for uh, you know another twenty five plus years and being you know kind of a very unique being at a unique intersection where you're a player coach on two different teams. Like I said, you retired as the all-time assist leader, as a player, you retired as the all-time wins leader, as a coach, you've got gold medals and, and championships, you know, next to your name. Um, it's been a, a really unique and incredible career. So thank you, Lenny Wilkins, very, Lenny Wilkins, very much for, uh, for coming on to Chasing Hardware. Uh, it, it was really a pleasure uh, for me to uh, be on with you and, and, and go back over the years. So I thank you so much and uh, I feel very blessed. And you take care, stay healthy, okay? Sounds good. Thank you, Lenny. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. 
I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal.